Chapter 54 of Memoirs of the Distinguished Men of Science of Great Britain, Living in the Years 1807 to 1808. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. Memoirs of the Distinguished Men of Science of Great Britain, Living in the Years 1807-1808, by William Walker, Jr. Chapter 54. Henry Court. Born 1740, died 1800. The sad history of this great inventor, who has been well surnamed the father of the iron trade, is comparatively soon told. Although his discoveries in the manufacture of iron were so important as to have been one of the chief causes in the establishment of our modern engineering, little is known of the life of the unfortunate inventor. He was born in 1740 at Lancaster, where his father carried on the trade of a builder and brickmaker. In 1765, at the age of 25, he was engaged in the carrying on of the business of a navy agent in Surrey Street, Strand, in which he is said to have realised considerable profits. While conducting this business, Court became aware of the inferiority of British iron in comparison with that of foreign countries, and entered on a series of experiments with the object of improving its manufacture. In 1775 he relinquished his business as a navy agent, and took a lease of some premises at Fontley near Fareham, where he erected a forge and an iron mill. He afterwards took into partnership Samuel Jellicoe, son of Adam Jellicoe, then deputy paymaster of seamen's wages, a connection which ultimately proved the cause of all court's subsequent misfortunes. Ford in 1747, Dr. Roebuck in 1762, the brothers Cranedge in 1766, and Peter Onions of Merthyr Tydfil in 1783, had all introduced valuable additions to the then-known processes of iron manufacture. In 1783-4, Court took out his two patents, which, while combining the inventions of his predecessors, specified so many valuable improvements of an original character that they established a new era in the history of iron manufacture and raised it to the highest state of prosperity. Mr. Truran, in speaking of court, remarks, The mode of piling iron to form large pieces, as described in his inventions, is the one at use in the present day. The method of puddling iron now in use is the same as that patented by Henry Court. There has been no essential departure from his process. Iron bottoms have been substituted for sand, and by building the furnace somewhat larger, a second charge of cast iron is introduced and partially heated during the finishing operations in the first, as conducted at the present day. All that has been done in the last 73 years has been in the way of adding to and perfecting quartz furnaces, as experience has from time to time suggested. Court's method of passing the piled wedge-shaped bars of iron through grooved rollers has been spoken of by another competent authority as of high philosophical interest being scarcely less than the discovery of a new mechanical power in reversing the action of the wedge 
by the application of force to four surfaces so as to elongate the mass instead of applying force to a mass to divide the four surfaces. The principal ironmasters soon heard of the success of Court's new inventions and visited his foundry for the purpose of examining his process and of employing it at their own works if satisfied with the results. Among the first to try it were Richard Crawshaw of Caifalva, Samuel Homfrey of Pennydaran, both in South Wales, and William Reynolds of Colebrookdale. The first two named at once entered into a contract to work under court's patents at ten shillings a ton royalty, and the quality of the iron manufactured by the new process was found to be so superior to other kinds that the Admiralty directed it, in 1787, to be used for all the anchors and other ironwork in the ships of the Royal Navy. The merits of the invention were now generally conceded, and numerous contracts for licenses were entered into with Court and his partner by the manufacturers of bar iron throughout the country, and licenses were taken at royalties estimated to yield £27,500 to the owners of the patent. Court himself made arrangements for carrying on the manufacture on a large scale, and with that object entered upon the possession of a wharf at Gosport belonging to Adam Jellicoe, his partner's father, where he succeeded in obtaining considerable government orders for iron made under his patents. This period, apparently the crowning point of Court's fortunes, was but the commencement of his ruin. In August 1789, Adam Jellicoe died, and defalcations were found in his public accounts to the extent of £39,676. His papers and books were at once seized by government, and on examination it was found that a sum of £54,853 was owing to Jellicoe by the court partnership for monies advanced by him at different times to enable court to pursue his experiments, which were necessarily of a very expensive character. Among the sums advanced by Jellicoe to court was found one of £27,500 entrusted to Jellicoe for the payment of seamen and officers' wages. As Jellicoe had the reputation of being a rich man, court had not the slightest suspicion of the source from which the advances made to the firm were derived nor has any connivance whatever on the part of court been suggested. The government, however, bound to act with promptitude in such a case, at once adopted extraordinary measures to recover their money. The assignments of court's patents, which had been made to Jellicoe in consideration of his advances, were taken possession of, but, strange to say, Samuel Jellicoe, the son of the defaulter, was put in possession of the properties at Fontley and Gosport, and continued to enjoy them, to court's exclusion, for a period of fourteen years. Notwithstanding this, the patent rights seem never to have been levied by the assignees, and the result was that the whole benefit of court's inventions was made over to the ironmasters and to the public, though there seems little reason to doubt that had they been duly levied, the whole of the debt due to the government would have been paid in the course of a few years. As for Court himself, on the death of Jellicoe, he left his ironworks a ruined man. 
he subsequently made many appeals to government for the restoration of his patents, and offered to find security for payment of the debt due by his firm to the Crown, but in vain. In 1794, an appeal was made to Mr. Pitt by a number of influential members of Parliament on behalf of the inventor and his destitute family of twelve children, when a pension of £200 was granted to him, which he enjoyed until the year 1800, when, broken in health and spirit, he died at the age of sixty. He was buried in Hampstead Church, where a stone marks the date of his death, and is still to be seen. A few years ago it was illegible, but it has been restored by his surviving son, Richard Court. Mr. Smiles thus concludes a long and interesting account of Court in his Industrial Biography. Though Court died in comparative poverty, he laid the foundations of many gigantic fortunes. He may be said to have been, in a great measure, the author of our modern iron aristocracy, who still manufacture after the processes which he invented or perfected, but for which they never paid him one shilling of royalty. These men of gigantic fortunes have owed much, we might say almost everything, to the ruined projector of the little mill at Fontley. Their wealth has enriched many families of the older aristocracy and has been the foundation of several modern peerages. Yet Henry Court, the rock from which they were hewn, is already all but forgotten, and his surviving children, now aged and infirm, are dependent for their support upon the slender pittance wrung by repeated entreaty and expostulation from the state. Smiles Industrial Biography, London, 1863. Mechanics Magazine, 1859, 60 and 61. End of chapter 54